everyone, and welcome to Gen Pop. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. And welcome to the show. Uh, Gen Pop is a podcast that tackles the topics dominating the conversation in pop culture. Each week, we take an issue that we've been reading about, writing about, thinking about, and we discuss it in depth. Uh, but before we get to our topics today, obviously last week we had some big news, and that is that this podcast is coming to an end. Uh, next week will be the last normal episode of Gen Pop. We'll still have like a couple of things come out in the feed after that. But uh, yeah, this podcast is coming to an end, uh, and we'll be winding down. And I would say there was an outpouring, Joanna, an outpouring of uh, people being really upset, people being sad, people being very understanding, sometimes a mix of all those things. Uh, a lot of people wrote in some very, very lovely tweets and emails to us uh, just saying, you know, I, I was actually really grateful at how many people said both A, um, love the show, it's like my favorite podcast, and B, I totally understand why you're ending the show. <laughs> um, and so really just happy at, at a lot of uh, the sentiments that we got at gempopshow at gmail.com. Uh, I'm just going to read one email that we got of the many uh, people that, that emailed in. This email comes in from David. Uh, David C., not me, uh, but uh, David C. wrote in, Today I woke up to the sad news that my favorite <laughs> podcast, Gem Pop, will end this month. I was a bit sad to hear this as many were, but I completely understand the reasoning for it and will continue to listen to anything you put out into the world. After your first episode, I emailed you because I started crying when Joanna started talking about a search for community that still rings true today. For so long, I felt lost and needed an outlet or, some, uh, or needed someone who not only understood what I felt, uh, but had the same sentiment about many aspects of pop culture and how it impacts our day-to-day lives. Because of your podcast, I no longer feel lost and alone. In episode four, Rise of the Grief Police, Joanna said, be the hero that this year took from you. That has really stuck with me. I still think about it daily. I've been a writer all my life. I've been published twice and made my own film that has touched many people's lives. But I've been looking for an outlet to purge everything that is still in me. To quote quiz kid Donnie Smith from Magnolia, I do have love to give. I just don't know where to put it. After thinking about it for quite some time, I've decided to start my, I've decided to start my own podcast, hopefully to launch this summer, covering some similar topics. I have you two to thank for the inspiration. You two have done such important work with this, and while I am sad to see it end, it has left such a lasting impact on my life that I will cherish. Even... Though it will end, I will carry the fire. I just want to say thank you for helping me understand myself. Thank you for making me feel like I'm not alone. Thank you for giving me a voice and helping me understand what I need to do next in life. I hope that somebody does for you what you've done for me. I wish you both the very best in life and look forward to any future podcasts you do. The email comes in from David. Can we uncancel the show? <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, it's lovely email yeah. and um, really glad that the show was able to provide an outlet for people or, or for them to feel a sense of community that they might not have had before. And of course, um, people already know that Joanna and I are not going to stop podcasting. We're going to keep doing podcasts. And in fact, uh, I want to thank everyone who contributed to our next podcast at peakstv.com. We're going to be recapping Twin Peaks. Uh, our first episode recapping Twin Peaks will come out next week because the season premiere of Twin Peaks is this weekend, uh, May 21st. Four episodes are dropping on Showtime this weekend, uh, Showtime uh, online as well. And uh, it's going to be a really interesting conversation about how this show has evolved over the years. David Lynch, uh, a very well-respected director who doesn't make that much stuff anymore, has apparently directed 
many of the episodes. Uh, has he done all the episodes, Joanna? I think like pretty much everyone, I, right? Uh, yeah, I believe he shot it as like one long movie, which is something that TV critics hate uh, TV seasons to be called. But he shot it all, <laughs> and then like to the point where he shot the whole thing, and then Showtime for a long time couldn't say how many episodes they were going to be because David Lynch was sort of deciding how to chop it up. Right. So right. he really did shoot it as sort of one long continuous thing, but is also insistent that it air episodically. Um, so Showtime is doing a weird, like, demi-binge release schedule, but they're not binge-releasing it. Demi-binge. So, Very nice. Yeah, I'm trying to – I've been trying to come up with a catchy way to – you know, it's like a soft binge or I don't yeah. know. You're trying to coin, you're trying to coin that phrase because uh, I years. mean – it's just it seems increasingly popular. Showtime's doing it for Twin Peaks. They did it for The Good Fight. And, and the reason that they're doing it, um, which is by it I mean with Twin Peaks, they're releasing the first four episodes on the first night. Um, and, and the reason they're doing it that way is to drive uh, users to their online platform. CBS yeah. and Showtime are owned by the same, you know, it's the same company. So this is obviously their strategy is like premiere something on the regular channel Showtime. And then immediately following it, if you want to keep binging um, <laughs> or however, you know, or watching, you could just use the word watch, I guess. If you want to keep watching, you can watch it on a streaming platform, but they want to make sure you like sign up for the streaming platform. And so you can watch episode three and four, and then you'd have to wait for the rest to be released week by week. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, you can find uh, all the episodes of our new podcast at peakstv.com. And of course, we'll be recapping Game of Thrones when it premieres later this year in July, I believe. Uh, a couple of other notes about the uh, Patreon page I just wanted to throw out there. Uh, firstly, as I mentioned last week, we will not be billing you on the Patreon page again, so don't worry. If you're, if you're pledged to us, you will not be charged again. Um, however, that being said, I, I think you still need to stay pledged in order to receive uh, some of our Patreon bonuses, our Patreon rewards, including our next Hangout. Uh, we're going to have one final Patreon Hangout. That's going to happen next Thursday, May 25th at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So our final Patreon hangout, if you're a subscriber, at $10 or above, May 25th, uh, 5 p.m. And so if you want to participate in the hangout and you're a $10 backer, make sure you stay subscribed to the page, like pledge to the page. Don't cancel your subscription. Otherwise, I don't think you'll be able to access that final hangout. Um, And so... Hopefully, we'll see you guys there next week, May 25th, 5 p.m. Pacific time uh, at patreon.com slash genpopshow. And speaking of other rewards, we promised uh, that you know when we decided to not do Ones Who Knock this year that we would recap every other episode of Better Call Saul and then do a season recap uh, of Better Call Saul when the season is over. We're going to put those bonus episodes out on the Patreon feed, and we're going to put the final recap episode out on the Gen Pop feed. So there's still value in subscribing to Gen Pop for the next few weeks on iTunes and wherever your podcasts are sold uh, because we will be doing a final recap of Better Call Saul at some point. Um, so stay tuned for that. Uh, and, and don't like I, I, all I'm saying is like don't cancel your things. Don't unsubscribe quite yet because we still have some content coming out for you. Uh, all right. I think that's all the administrative news that we okay. have. You can also email us at genpopshow at gmail.com. So in terms of the topic for today – uh, there, were, you know, we thought we'd actually just one emailer wrote in something that was very interesting that we thought we'd spend most of the time discussing. But one other thing I wanted to mention from Rachel from Seattle who wrote in to genpopshow at gmail.com. Rachel was responding to our review last week of The Handmaid's Tale. Right. 
And uh, Rachel writes in to gempopshow.gmail.com, I'm a photographer, and I have to say, I think you're not giving the filtered look of The Handmaid's Tale a fair shake. Uh, this is in reference to the comments that I, David Chen, made last week about uh, how the show looks like it was run through an Instagram filter. Uh, Rachel writes, I agree that adding any filter to a show or movie is tricky. It can be distracting, and you need to have a good reason for doing so. This particular look may not be something added post-process, but a matter of color balance and focus. Uh, To be fair, it probably is a digital effect, but tinting film or photographs is something that's been done for as long as people have been taking photos. Instagram did not invent, uh, invent tungsten hues. The book and the show have an airy, dreamlike quality to them. The dialogue often compares waking and sleeping states. In the book, Offred narrates various stream of consciousness slipping into memories of the past and being afraid that she will become unable to discern the past from the present. The composition of the shots adds to the feeling of these events as memories. People and objects seem to loom large or shrink. Tight framing offers remembered glimpses of faces as if we are intimately close to them. The warm tone of the filter contributes to the dreamlike sequence feeling I got from the show all over. It's clearly unnatural, but the uneasiness the viewer feels about it, Dave, I'm looking at you, is purposeful. Uh, I'll end it right there, but you know that email comes from Rachel from Seattle, and basically defending the look of Handmaid's Tale. Joanna, mm-hmm. it sounds like you already agreed with her, Rachel, last week when we discussed the show, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, uh, but it was really interesting. <laughs> it's nice to have someone with a little bit more specificity to their argument versus me being like, "I think it looks real good, though." <laughs> um, <laughs> so. That's a good Joanna impression, Joanna. <laughs> Thank you. So, so thank you for backing me up with actual sort of facts and details. Uh, do, are you convinced or swayed by anything that, that no, she wrote? No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not swayed. I, That's I a mean, really good take, I, okay. impression. I, I mean, I guess I feel like, yeah, I can buy that it was a cho- – like it's clearly a choice. It's clearly a choice. You know, it's not like they did it because they had to do it to mask the potentially low budget. So it's clearly a choice. I guess I just wish that the those dreamlike qualities that she's talking about, I, it feels to me like they could be uh, obtained through other filmmaking techniques, right? Uh, as an example, I think the end of episode three of Handmaid's Tale, I won't spoil it, but there is this crazy scene that involves Alexis Bledel, right? Uh, that a lot of people have been complimenting on Twitter and, and across the internet. Um, you know, and it's that scene is not tinted, but it creates this whole new mood uh, and this intensity without the use of like crazy colors or filters or tungsten hues. Uh, and I wish they had leaned more into you know other filmmaking techniques other than the color, which just felt to me uh, a bit amateurish compared to all the other stuff on display in the show. Mm. Well, so. I just I disagree with you about that, but I also think that like there's a lot of um, camera trickery in that Bladell scene that you mentioned. There's like swinging close-ups. There's fuzzing in and out of focus. And that, I mean, in this most recent episode, I, I don't think you're watching the rest of the season, but the episode six, which aired this week, there's a great scene, and I don't even know how they accomplished this, maybe digitally. Um, but there, there's a scene where Offred, who's played by. Um, 
Elizabeth Moss is interacting with uh, the commander is played by Joseph Fiennes and she's sort of, he's demanding she, she do something. She's reluctant to do it. We've already sort of seen her steal her resolve or, or like put on a mask or performance for him. But what happens in the frame is that like she blurs entirely. They're, they're standing, you know, side by side, face to face. She blurs entirely and the focus is all on him and it's very effective. And so, yeah, I think The Handmaid's Tale is not afraid of doing these like very extreme things and I, I hear you saying that the colorizing feels yeah, like, a, like just, feels like a shortcut whereas right. maybe some of these other things do work for you but I, I just find the whole package to be very um, alluring to look at yeah. especially when color is so important to this particular universe fair so enough yeah and I, I love the costume design for it. every mm-hmm. other usage of color I really enjoy like the costume mm-hmm. design I think is very effective you know how the handmaids wear certain dresses certain colored dresses and um, other people wear different colored clothes uh, may, I, I don't know maybe um, maybe I'm just biased against what I perceive as an effect that I could achieve using you know like iMovie or something uh, but but maybe even that statement is not giving what they're doing on the show in terms of color enough credit. So uh, I, I think there's definitely validity to, to this argument, and I, I respect you for uh, for liking it, and as do I respect Rachel for liking it. It's just not something that really works for me personally. Um, but appreciate the email and uh, and the defense of the show's use of color. All right, let's get to our main topic today. This email comes in from Zach from Boston, Massachusetts, my old stomping grounds. <laughs> Zach wrote in to genpopshow at gmail.com. Uh, at what point do we allow actors to play roles different than who they are in real life? And at what point is it cultural appropriation? Examples of whitewashing are easy. Uh, take Iron Fist, Great Wall, Doctor Strange, Breakfast at Tiffany's. But what about more subtle examples? Where is the line? For instance, Hikaru Sulu is of a Japanese ancestry, yet is played by John Cho, who is of Korean ancestry. Or Fresh Off the Boat is about a Taiwanese family, but the father is played by a Korean-American. Selma Hayek is playing an Iranian in September's of Shiraz. The horror film Hush, which features a hearing woman playing a deaf woman stalked by a psycho. Uh, incidentally, this caused a large uproar in the deaf community and started the hashtag uh, deaf talent. An able-bodied actor playing a wheelchair-bound character like in Glee, straight actors playing gay characters, specifically in American Gods, two straight men and a straight director had to shoot a graphic sex scene twice because no one knew how gay sex worked. Uh, <laughs> how gay sex worked, I should say. What would gay actors or a gay director have brought to that scene? Cis actors playing trans characters like in Trans America, Transparent, Dallas Buyers Club, etc. Sure, we all get pissed off when an Irish guy gets cast as an Egyptian, literally the whitest of white people playing an African. But do we file that under he was the best actor for the job? No one denies the talent of Felicity Huffman, Jeffrey Tambor, or Jared Leto. They were slash are spectacular. But were there no trans actors for these roles? Again, I ask, where do we draw the line between actors uh, who need range to stretch their respective talents and cultural appropriation. Really complicated question from Zach uh, from Boston, Massachusetts. And let's just caveat this right up front and say that, you know, although we technically are minorities, Joanna, right? Uh, you're a woman. I'm an Asian male. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's obviously a whole range of uh, human experiences that we have not lived. Uh, you know, n- neither of us are trans. Uh, neither of us are homosexual and so 
uh, th- there's just like a lot that we can't really speak on behalf of. Uh, we can only speak from our perspective. Just wanted to acknowledge that up front uh, as like, you know, take what we are about to say from our limited perspectives. Uh, all that being said, Joanna, uh, this is something that really kind of struck you as an as a interesting question. And so uh, what are your thoughts on Zach's question? When, when, where's the line of actors playing different roles than who they are? I mean, the answer is the line is always moving. Um, and, and so I think we talked about this a little bit when we talked about, you know, our, our Asian whitewashing specific episode, but, um, like, I really feel like what we're, what we're seeing a lot with the Asian whitewashing conversation is the needle moving on something that like, at this point it's already like, you can't wear blackface. Everyone agrees. <laughs> you can't do that. Not That's, everyone. Not everyone. Okay. Like there's still uh, people. Obviously, there's still people that do it and they get humiliated online. And oh, sure. I, but I mean, like in a major Hollywood picture, yes, unless yes. you're Robert Downey Jr. making fun of blackface for the most part, like you know, you you wouldn't have like C. Thomas Howell do Soul Man now, right. uh, which he did in the '80s. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that's where the, the Asian whitewashing conversation is going is towards a place where like it's. Um, it's unconscionable. It's, it's just, you would not even consider casting a white person in, in an Asian role. Um, eventually, like <laughs> that's, that's, that's my hope, but I have always been really fascinated by these slightly more complicated questions. When, when Zach wrote that email, I immediately thought of like my favorite example of, I mean, we, we definitely get into, like, trans and able-bodied and, and straight, straight characters play gay characters. But, like, in terms of people playing different ethnicities or different nationalities, I always think of Alfred Molina, who has played, like, everything under the sun. But it's not considered, you know, racist. He does different accents. He wears more eyeliner. He wears less. But it's like, you know, he's played Peruvian in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Russian in Letter to Brezhnev, Iranian in Not Without My Daughter, Cuban in the Perez Family, French in Chocolat, Mexican in Frida, German in Luther, Ecuadorian in Chronicas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know? And um, it's, it's just interesting to me that, you know, that that is okay, that him putting a little bit tanner makeup on his face and some eyeliner and accent, it's okay for Alvin Molina to be whatever he is. Yeah. Ditto Ben Kingsley. And then what was your example of that, Dave? Cliff Curtis. Mm-hmm. Cliff Curtis. Uh, who has played tons of different ethnicities. Yeah. I, th- I think there was like a supercut that went around a couple of years ago of him like playing all these different ethnicities. He's yeah. currently, you can currently see him or I actually – actually don't know if he's still on Fear of the Walking Dead. Um, that's not a spoiler. I just don't actually know. But I was surprised. I rewatched um, Avatar The Last Airbender, the terrible M. Night Shyamalan movie the other day. <laughs> and uh, Cliff Curtis, I believe, is like from New Zealand, right? And, yeah, he plays a Lord of the Fire Nation in yeah. The Last Airbender, right? Yeah. He plays – I mean, they uh, that movie is a mess. Of nationalities, but they kind of they cast all the Fire Nation with like Dev Patel and Asif Manvi, so sort of, they were sort of going for like an East Asian sort of vibe, and then uh, and then they put Cliff Curtis in there too because he, <laughs> he's also swarthy. Like I don't know, so that's that's something that's always I don't know. What do you, have you ever any thoughts on on this very specific question of of 
race blind casting. Yeah. So Cliff Curtis, by the way, has also played uh, apparently African American, Arab, uh, Latino, and Indian before. So he's uh, very versatile and kind of whenever someone needs a generically ethnic person, Cliff Curtis is there, uh, Johnny on the spot with the the different ethnicities. I think what this th- this question is really interesting from Zach uh, because it gets at a lot of different tensions that we have in our society. Um, one is that obviously film is primarily a visual medium. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, like people don't know you you can only tell kind of what people's ethnicities are by sight and sometimes you're wrong and that's why no one is really upset if uh john cho plays a japanese person i mean some people are obviously are upset but i mean i wasn't upset even though uh i'm i'm asian i'm not japanese i'm not korean so maybe if i were i would be more upset but i think like what for for a lot of people what they can see is what is real you know like seeing is believing they see someone that looks vaguely like an ethnicity and that's enough for a lot of people right um and so that's one aspect that this this question highlights another aspect is that uh the economic realities of hollywood are different than the economic realities of society as a whole and what i mean by that is uh if you need someone to play an Asian person or uh, an Indian person in uh, a show or a movie, um, you might not always be able to get a really talented Indian person or Asian person. Just or, or you might be able to get one, but they might not be able to open your film in a big way financially, or you might not be able to get financing for the film financially. Uh, of course, a lot of that's changing, and that's good, but I'm just saying like – the the distribution of people working in Hollywood in terms of ethnicity is not the same as the distribution of people uh, in the United States, right? Like there's more diverse uh, diversity in America as a whole than there is in Hollywood uh, and just in terms of in front of and behind the camera. And so there's just different economic realities. I'm reminded of this piece that Aziz Ansari wrote uh, mm. about uh, – it's in the New York Times. It's called Aziz Ansari on Acting, Race, and Hollywood. Do you remember this? Um, was it around season one of Master of None? Yeah, it was around the time. It was published in November of 2015. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. will uh, link to it in the show notes. But he's talking about how uh, Fisher Stevens right. uh, played an Indian person in Short Circuit. Right. Uh, he writes here, One day in college, I decided to go on the film and television website IMDb to see what happened to the Indian actor from Short Circuit 2. Turns out the Indian guy was a white guy. The character was played by Mr. Stevens, a Caucasian actor in brownface. Rather than cast an Indian actor, the filmmakers had Mr. Stevens sit every morning in a makeup chair and get painted an Indian color before going on set and doing his quote-unquote Indian voice. Uh, And so then, like, later on, Aziz Ansari talks to Fisher Stevens, and he says... um, uh, I can confirm that Mr. Stevens is not a villain, but was, when he took the role, a well-intentioned, if slightly misguided young actor who needed a job during a more culturally insensitive time, uh, end quote. And basically goes on to say, like, Stevens deeply regrets, uh, or, or not, not necessarily deeply regrets, but, like, would not take that role if he was offered it today. Right. Uh, because times have changed, and it's no longer acceptable to paint a white person brown and... Um, uh, and have them play an Indian person. So th- this brings up two points, which is like, number one, what I was already saying about economic reality. Like back then, 
this guy was a young actor, and for some reason they weren't casting Indians at a great clip in Hollywood, and so they decided to cast this white person. And he was young and maybe uh, need, in need of a job, and so the economic reality was he took this job that, that made him play brownface. But the second thing and final thing I'll say before I throw it back to you, Joanna, is that I think on a long enough timeline, all that stuff will, cha- like, all that stuff will change, and maybe one day – one day we will have a problem with all these things that Zach is talking about. You know, maybe one day uh, when there are tons of Japanese people and Korean people and gay people and uh, deaf people and uh, otherwise different people in Hollywood, it will be the expectation that you need to cast those people in those specific roles. Um, and I just, I kind of, I'm so sorry. I know yeah. you, you said you wanted to finish and throw no, me, no, but I okay. just, I just, I have this bad reaction to that argument. I don't think that you're making it with any sort of bad intention, but I, it feels like a justification that a lot of casting directors and directors use of like, oh, you know, this talent just isn't there. Whereas I feel like it's, I, I, I know, I know you're not necessarily advocating it, but at the same time, like, um, Jeffrey Tambor is so great and transparent, and he's great in that role. He just is. But, like, I really do applaud um, Jenji Cohen for casting Laverne Cox in Orange is the New Black because that just brings a whole different – that brings something to that role that a straight actor could not bring to that role, just could not. Or yeah. not straight, I should say, non-trans, cis person, you know? And, like um, – and – and then in doing so, in elevating Laverne Cox, who was an unknown before Orange the New... So it's not like, um, you know... It's oh, not this, like it was economically advantageous to Right, or, or, the, or this yeah. trans person, like, existed, and of course, you know, it's like, Jenji Cohen casts this person, and then all of a sudden Laverne Cox becomes this, like, symbol for the trans community. You know what I mean? And so, like, I think, you know, and the same is true of, like, like Aziz Ansari. Aziz Ansari is cast... One of the main reasons, you know, he was in the sketch comedy troupe Human Giant, but, like, one of the main reasons people know him is because he's cast as Tom Hammerford in Parks and Recreation. That role, really, if you want to think about it, like, probably should not, like, if, if, if an, like, I'll say, if a less imaginative cast casting director were casting a character named Tom Hammerford <laughs> who lived in Indiana, they wouldn't cast Aziz Ansari, but right. they did. And now we have Aziz Ansari as a creative person. Do you yeah, know what I mean? And yeah, so like, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, Joanna. So like, yeah. I, I don't disagree with anything, anything you're saying. I think – and I'm probably not expressing myself very well. I guess what I'm trying to get to the bottom of is Zach has listed all these examples of people playing things that they aren't, like minority groups that they aren't. And I'm trying to get at – why that doesn't bother me and people in general, like why we don't hear about like lots of uh, outrage about these things. And part of that might be we just run in different circles and maybe there is outrage over every single one of these decisions that Zach talked about. Uh, but it, it's not nearly the same level of outrage as we hear for, for, from my perspective, you know, for like Ghost in the Shell, which um, is all over the place, you know. Uh, right. and, so, that, 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 so that's what I'm trying to get at is like why do why am I not bothered by these things right now? And I'm saying part of it is 
just economic realities maybe and part of it is that on a, on a long enough timeline maybe we will be bothered by it so. right yeah i agree with you that like this this might be what, what i was saying before and what you're saying right now which is like the needle moving and eventually the needle might move on a little further on some of these things i think it already has on trans representation like i, I believe jeffrey timbor in a recent awards acceptance speech was like kind of effectively like hopefully i'm the last right person cast in a trans right show. you know right, what i mean right, right. um and, and it's interesting. I was watching. I was rewatching Priscilla Queen of the Desert, which was one of my like favorite movies as a kid. I loved that movie, and that movie is nothing but gay and drag queen like positive, right? And none of those actors—Hugo Weaving, Guy Pearce, or Terry Stamp—are gay men. They're all straight men, and they're playing very campy in some circumstances. And so I was thinking. I was rewatching it the other day, and I was like. If this came out now, would this just be destroyed for being insensitive? Like three straight right. men playing these campy drag queens? And I was like, that's that's sad to me because I don't think this movie is about promoting stereotypes or making fun of this community or anything. I think it's all about supporting and loving that community. And so that's really interesting to me. And I think what you say about film and television being very visual mediums is is really important because when it comes to a gay character or let's say like um the character of Artie on Glee who is in a wheelchair like um you know that character that the actor who plays Artie on Glee like we have no way of knowing if we just turn on the show and never seen him before that that kid is not disabled because he looks exactly the same to our eyes as a kid who would be in a wheelchair you know and um you know, the same is true of a gay character. It's like, well, who knows who? I mean, it's whoever knows who is gay in Hollywood necessarily. And so, um, I don't know. It's it's just interesting. But I think it it is true that if you can cast a person who has experienced that thing, um, it will bring more to that role. And the thing that I really hated that Glee did actually with that character, even though Glee was also very much about trying to like support different people is there would occasionally be like these fantasy sequence because that actor, that performer actually can dance quite well. Yeah. And so occasionally there'd be these like fantasy sequences where he would like get out of his chair and dance around. And I was just like, I just don't like that. I get that that might be a fantasy of a kid who's in a wheelchair, but like, I just didn't like that at all. It was like having your cake and eat it too. And I was just like, I, yeah, that, that troubles me. Anyway, that was a rambling. It it troubles you because it like, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what part of it troubles you. Like the fact that it reveals that an able-bodied person is playing a disabled person. Like what, how did, why does that bother you? Um, I don't, I, because actually kids who are in wheelchairs don't have the luxury of doing that. I don't know. And so I see, I see. I don't know. So uh, a, a few thoughts on, on what you said. I think another yeah. another issue uh, that that is is kind of intermixing with this with like the economics argument. Like you have to take the inter- entertainment industry as like its own its own industry, its own kind of industrial complex. And a, a lot of actors are taught that they uh, you know I, I do this other podcast called The Tobolowski Files with Stephen Tobolowski, who's a very well-regarded character actor. He tells stories about his life. And there was a recent episode of the show called Soldiers of Empathy. And who are the Soldiers of Empathy? The Soldiers of Empathy, uh, unsurprisingly, are actors. Like the actors, they embody these other people who they aren't. 
They take on their characteristics. They take on their attitudes. And they try to make you, the audience, feel for these groups of people that you might not otherwise feel for. Whether it be uh, you know, a high school glee club or you know, a uh, monarchy in, in like the medieval ages. Like whatever it is, um, they're channeling these other groups of people. And trying to, you know, I think a lot of people would say, like, it, it is a legitimate acting decision to play someone who is gay or to play someone who is disabled um, or to play someone who is a minority. Like, they, because the, the job of an actor is to channel these other people, to generate empathy for them, that it's, it's all kind of tied in together with, like, what is the role of an actor in this equation? And the problem is that that, idea collides with uh, the cultural and economic realities of the entertainment industry. Like, the reason why um, we don't like Scarlett Johansson playing an Asian person, uh, or a role that could have gone to an Asian person, um, or, you know, a role that could have gone to an Asian person in a, uh, a property that feels like it's set in an Asian country or city, is that that lead actor is theoretically taking a role away from someone else who could fill that role and could economically benefit from that role. Um, and so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like I understand the impulse of people who, who think that any of these decisions that Zach listed, you know, John Cho playing Sulu, um, Selma Hayek playing an Iranian, Cliff Curtis, Alfred Molina, any of those decisions – are artistically justifiable because act, that's all actors do is they pretend to be other people. And I think the, the reason that answer no longer flies is because we now have a culture and, and economic reality where like we want a diversity of people, a, a diverse group of people to benefit um, from being in the entertainment industry. Do you know? Uh, and that's what's creating a lot of tension. I don't know if I addressed your point at all, um, but I tried to. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Like, well, the question, the question is to me, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just these, these muddy cases, like, because I think there is a real difference between, you know, Rob Schneider doing some of the stuff that he's doing, like playing Hawaiian and 51st dates or Palestinian and, you know, mess with the Zohan, like stuff like that. Your, your so, Rob Schneider filmography knowledge is frightening, just so you know. But. Uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Versus like, um, I don't know. Yeah. Ben Kingsley being like Israeli and Iranian and Indian and uh, Polish, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's I don't know, or, or or even like this is a weird this is a weird example, but like over on the Storm of Spoilers podcast, I was doing this thing for a while where I would read like uh, reviews from a foreign country in in a terrible butchered version of an accent from that country. But there were accents that I would not do because it's like racially insensitive to do them. You know what I mean? But yep. like I can do an English accent, I can do a French accent, I can do a Spanish accent, I can do a German accent, but like uh, there are accents I won't do. And so that's interesting. It's like why is that okay and this isn't and, and where is the needle and why? And like um, – Yeah, you, you know, here's, here's a different way of attacking that question. So uh, like uh, this has been brought up to me a couple of times before um, – 
a, a, another a comedian asked me about like, hey, why is it okay for me to do an English accent but not like a Chinese accent or an African accent or, or right. South African accent or whatever? Um, and it, it is a it is a good question to ask why that's the case. Um, Louis C.K. actually did a bit about this in one of his most recent shows about how like he used to do these funny voices for his kids, uh, but now it's become no longer socially acceptable to do the, the voices. But he still like he doesn't he doesn't want to disparage other races, but he just likes the voices because he thinks they're inherently funny, right? And like why why is he not allowed to do that? And there's a lot of questions about this. Uh, I had a conversation with a filmmaker recently who was asking me what is the difference between a movie like Ghost in the Shell and a movie like The Departed. Like, why is The Departed... We about, didn't we talk about this on the whitewashing episode, too? Right? I think we, yeah, I think we talked yeah. about it. But it's, okay, it's basically, yeah. like, in one case, it feels like they're, um, they're looting uh, this property for parts. Like, they're just taking... Oh, uh, the setting and this uh, the basic concept, and then we're just gonna and we're just gonna slap a white person in there, and right. everything's gonna be fine. Like that's Ghost in the Shell, and then in the, the case of The Departed, they're they're com- they're inspired by the original film Infernal Affairs and completely reinventing it and making it specific to America. Um, and I, I don't know, I don't know if that addresses your question of like why some voices are good or bad, but it feels to me like the kernel of the answer is in that. Oh, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, so like, I mean, like I, one, you're using it for to oh. get a cheap laugh, you know, or like in the case of Rob Schneider, you're using this ethnicity and its associations to get a cheap laugh. Um, whereas sometimes you may have a lot of respect for it. You may, you know, uh, use well, it for so, other purposes. Yeah. What's interesting about my very weird and specific example, which I guess is shared by stand-up comedians around the world, is like the joke of that bit that I do on Storm of Spoilers sometimes is I'm terrible at accents i'm not terrible at accents i'm just like (laughs) i'm like bad enough that it's funny but i'm not so bad that you don't want to listen to it i think it's like a sweet spot of badness and so um and so when i do a french accent that's not necessarily good it's not like i'm not like it's not a cheap it's not like oh i like brie and french bread it's not that but it's like it's not a cheap laugh but there's still a laugh involved with it but it couldn't address the if if someone wrote in from like Japan, I would never ever do that ever. Right, and that's just an it, it, it's the intention on those two things is exactly the same, but I would never do it, and well, uh, well, I don't know why. But I'm I'm not and I'm not upset about it. I'm not angry that I that I don't feel like I can do it at all. I'm not like Louis C.K. where I'm like, oh man, I really wish I could do it. <laughs> I don't. I'm just like very curious why there are lines on certain things. Well, I think it also has to do with the fact that for much of human history, white people have subjugated and owned, uh, like literally owned people of other races. So, <laughs> I mean, I feel like that also plays into it. Yeah, you know? so is, is the line, like, it's okay to do an accent if the people who have that accent are also white? So, like, I can right. do a German accent or a French accent or an English accent? I mean, like... roughly, roughly that's how I personally feel about okay. it. Okay, yeah. But, but I don't know that, like, it's super justifiable other than, like, <laughs> white, white, white people have, uh, you know, as a fact, you know, have yep. uh, bombed a ton of non-white people and have enslaved and subjugated a lot of non-white people um and so i think the idea is that we we have moved past that now uh theoretically and that 
the idea of appropriating their accents or their uh, culture in different ways is just is, is simply another form of subjugation, and that like that's why it's to be avoided. You know, um, well, I'm happy to avoid it. I'm just like sort of interested <laughs> by my own psychology, like, right, where, right, right. where I personally found a boundary. Jo- and- Joanna, I think your instincts are right on in this. Case. <laughs> Whatever path you're on, <laughs> keep proceeding down it because I think it's bearing fruit. So, uh, right. uh, so anyway, uh, what what do you make of my assertion that maybe like on a long enough timeline, all these diseases will bother us? Because I think ideally, if there were, you know, a thousand incredibly skilled, well known, uh, let's say Japanese actors in Hollywood. Right, that maybe you could have gotten some a Japanese person to play Hikaru Sulu in the new Star Trek series. Well, the thing is, the well-known thing—that's the thing—is like I bet there, there, I bet that there are plenty of handsome, charismatic Japanese or Japanese American actors in Hollywood who could have played the part of Sulu just as well as John Cho. Who John Cho is a precious gift to humanity, and I Agreed. love him very much. But like. Those actors do exist in Hollywood. The question is exactly what you're saying, the well-known thing. But the question is, like, really, how well-known was John Cho? He's Harold of Harold and Kumar, but, like, Wait, hold on, you know, hold on, it's getting really loud there. Just give it a second. Okay. The, the question really is, like, how well-known is John Cho? He's Harold of Harold and Kumar, but, like, he, John Cho is not selling Star Trek. I'm glad John Cho's in that. Uh, I don't know about glad. John Cho's great in that role. I I am not advocating for him not to have that role. But like, the I, think, Jap- I think you kind of are, and I, I well, think I like Japanese, what you're saying, right? The Japanese talent exists. It is yeah. there. It's not, you know. And those actors will never get the opportunity. If I mean, it's it's. It's a little harder to parse because it's not as if the, t- the casting agents on that particular film were like, we won't cast an Asian because they, you know, they cast an Asian American <laughs> actor. But like, um, but yeah, you know, they're looking for they're looking for a one... lot of things. They're looking for an optimal mix of someone who's like re- relatively well known, who's extremely talented, and who fits that v- some vision of the character for them. You know, and maybe the only one they could find was John Chu. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't like. It sounds like I'm defending Hollywood casting practices. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really. Not defending, I'm trying to understand. You know, does, does that make sense? Like, yeah, I'm not saying like everything, every decision they made was justified. I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to understand the mindset of people who would cast John Cho instead of, uh, like you said, one of the probably many Japanese actors who would be appropriate for that. And I'm, try, I'm just trying to understand why, you know, why that decision happened. I think but, it's just, it's, for me, it feels like effort because really, I don't think John Cho is selling anything. Someone is, they're like, oh, we, John Cho, we know him. Let's use him versus the, the just slightly more efforty, like, let's make sure we think of some Japanese candidates. And maybe they did think of some Japanese candidates and, and they didn't work out. But like, do you know what I mean? Like, they will, John Cho is familiar to a casting director, right? They know who John Cho is. The American public, not everyone the American public maybe didn't before Star Trek, but like the casting director does. And so they're like, oh, let's do that. Whereas like maybe you have a director, you know, like, like for example, Moana, right? Which is this Disney animated film that came out last fall and uh, verse, you know, um, made an effort to make sure that every single person they cast in a voice role, except for Alan Tudyk as a chicken, uh, was a Pacific Islander, uh, Asian Pacific Islander descent. Every single one. 
And, you know, they had The Rock, you know, which is easy. But, you know, but they, like, they just... Yeah, they did a massive search and they found Alihi Crovallo, right? Yeah. Who is a complete unknown, right? Right. But then also just, like, a couple other people, like Rachel House, who's this great sort of, like, New Zealand actress and, like, all these other people. Uh, oh, I can't remember her name right now, but she was a pussycat doll. She, you know, it's like... Okay, yeah, you, you, you've convinced me, Joanna. There's no excuse <laughs> for anyone... Not casting people that are not actually of that kind. I, but, think, you're, but, I think you're right. But um, I did want to, while we're talking about Sulu, I, this is slightly tangential, but I wrote this piece over at Manny Fair that did like way more traffic than I thought. It, it's actually like our top post for the month so far, but it's um, it's about this silly sketch that Chris, the silly Star Trek sketch that Chris Pine did on SNL when he hosted uh, yeah. like a week and a half ago and how, um, you know, they got this production designer, Akira Yoshimura, who played Sulu in the original uh, Star Trek sketch they did in the very first season of SNL. He's been playing Sulu for SNL uh, ever since, you know, it's been 43 years, I think it is, since, since the show first began. This production designer has been playing Sulu because they've literally never had anyone in their cast who could play Sulu. <laughs> not, you know, like not even a John Cho Sulu who's not quite Japanese. Like <laughs> they've never had an Asian actor who could play Sulu. And that's crazy to yeah. me. You well, know? What's also funny is their um, <laughs> that opened it opened with uh him saying like I'm Chris Pine, not all these other Chris's, right? Right. Uh, which don't confuse you to this other white white actor. Yeah, I mean, Chris's. there's more. Yeah. There's more Chris's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe than there are like main, you know, top build Asian actors. Um, there are more Chris's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe than there has ever been an Asian cast member on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and. I mean, here's here. Uh, you know, again, I'm I'm trying to be empathetic here, because uh, on the one hand, I'm grateful that they didn't try to have a, yes. a white person play Sulu. Like yes. that's that in the, in the points in their category, you know, for not doing that. Uh, but yeah, I think so. I, I, I think on a long enough timeline, and hopefully that timeline is not that long, that uh, these things that Zach is talking about in his email to gmail.com like will. Like it will be the expectation one day that if it's a gay character that we can find a gay person to play him. You know, if it's a deaf character, we can find a deaf person to play that person. Yeah, my sister and I were talking about um, the you know, there, were, there was recently a revival of Miss Saigon on Broadway, and it kicked up this whole conversation that that like I didn't know had ever happened in the first place about the actor Jonathan Price who played this half Asian character in the original production of Miss Saigon in London. And then there was this whole protest that kicked up when they brought the production to New York that the actors, actors equity, I believe led by BD Wong were like, we don't want Jonathan Price playing this role. We want this role to go to an Asian actor. And, uh, the production got his way. Jonathan Price played the role. He won the Tony for the role. And they, I mean, like when he played it in London, he played it with some facial prosthetics and they, he dyed his hair black. And when he played it on Broadway, he didn't use the facial prosthetics and he did not dye his hair black. But he won the Tony Award. He is really good in that role is the thing is like that's the controversial thing that you don't want to say or like 
or like someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman in the, in the film Flawless, where he plays a drag queen, and like Philip Seymour Hoffman is freaking amazing in that role. And so there is, you know, as much as I have for the last however many like thirty minutes or whatever advocated for casting um, more responsibly, I would say the idea of losing those performances also like does honestly give me a little bit of a pang. Yeah, like, and, and I, it's a situation you know, where you know they auditioned. Uh, 50 or uh, 300 actors for a specific role uh, and they're like the person who's better in that role is a white person like maybe that just happens uh, and so what do you what do you tell that person no you must cast the, the minority character even though this white person could pass as that person and even though the white person's better than that person at the specific role it's tough it's tough I, I, I guess you know we've spent a lot of time on this podcast inveighing against things like Ghost in the Shell but I guess, you know, as we're, as we're wrapping up our time here on the podcast, I guess part of what we're saying right now is that we also understand that some of these decisions are not necessarily malicious, right? That they are uh, sometimes maybe just merely negligent or perhaps uh, very purposeful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the case of Jonathan Price, it was like he was a friend and the role was sort of promised to him. So that's not even like something he necessarily came by, honestly, except for his deep, deep wells of talent. But uh, yeah, I guess what I will say, what I'm willing to say in a way that maybe we haven't said before is that it's just more complicated than some arguments would would have you believe. It's complicated. It's It's complicated. complicated. It's always (laughs) It's always changing, and I think if we had this conversation in like three years from now, it would be significantly different than even today. Yeah. Um, But anyway, hopefully you guys found that somewhat interesting. Uh, And thanks to Zachary for emailing in uh, that question to genpopshow at gmail.com. We are still taking requests for what our final topic of uh, genpop will be next week. Um, So you can always email us at genpopshow at gmail.com if you uh, have a thought on that. We have some ideas, but... uh, We think it'll be a fun show either way. So uh, thanks to Zach for writing in. Uh, Stay tuned for pop culture recommendations. Welcome to Pop Culture Recommendations, the weekly part of the show where we give you something we've been reading, uh, reading, watching, mainlining, eating, listening to, whatever (laughs) – and we recommend it to you for your consumption. Before we get to that, though, we just want to thank one last time all of our Patreon producers uh, this month. We're just going to get them all out of the way in this episode and next episode. We we might not uh, do a specific call out, but Joanna, you want to thank some people. I do. I want to thank Patrick Simon, Jameson Shepard, Tina S, Matthew DeBarger, John Lee, Mike Mendoza, and Ted Abernathy. Thanks so much. Thanks also to Eskil Teigen, C. Robert Cargill, Nathan Bodnar, Susan Cole, Francis Adrian, Derek Bachman, John Heidman, Mike Gonzalez, Paul Baker, and Gustavo Villarreal, who works at rickyrascals.com. He's the one who does our podcast art. Thanks so much to everyone for your contributions, uh, and we really appreciate you supporting the podcast up until this point. It's been amazing, and we could not have done it. We literally could not have done it without you. So thanks so much. All right, Joanna, we got some pop culture recommendations this week. Go ahead. Yes. um, This is pure coincidence that we happen to be talking about Aziz Ansari earlier in the episode because my pop culture recommendation is Master of None Season 2. I watched it 
I didn't watch any of the screeners in advance, so I just watched it when it dropped this last weekend. And um, everyone had been saying it was so good. I was like, it really can't be that good. It is so good. It's better than season one, which I quite liked. Uh, the first few episodes take place in Italy. Um, Bobby Cannavale plays a sort of Anthony Bourdain figure. He's really good. Um, and it's just, and there's this whole bottle episode that that takes place over several Thanksgiving not a bottle episode, but it takes place over several Thanksgivings over the course of like a decade. Um, and it's, and it guest stars Angela Bassett. Uh, and it's just like, it's just, and then there's one call, I think it's just called New York. I love you where he basically did an episode that is like the movie Paris Jatem. And I think there is a New York. I love you where it's just little like vignettes of people in New York and, and the main characters are in it for like, five minutes and then the rest it just follows characters around New York and it's just um, creatively liberated and really interesting as he's Ansari is so great he's got a strong very emotional thread that pulls him through the season it's not just like experimental for experimental sake and it has some poignancy to it definitely some sadness but it's also it's just a joyful experience um celebration of food and i sound so trite celebration of food and friendship and love uh and good movies and and all this sort of stuff but it's it it just is it's a beautiful season of television i was so overjoyed to watch it so master of none season two cool it's on netflix right now i'm looking forward to checking that out uh loved season one it was uh very made a big impact on my life so uh looking forward to season two I had a chance to listen to like some old podcasts. I've been catching up on some old podcasts um, this past uh, few weeks. Have you ever listened to the Startup Podcast, Joanna Robinson? I have not, no. It's a, a podcast from Gimlet Media, which is a podcast startup. And they launched a podcast called Startup that's about the building of the startup that is making the podcast you're listening to. Does that make sense? <laughs> they, yeah. It's called the Startup Podcast, and uh, they made a podcast about building the company that makes that podcast. But then in subsequent seasons, it's on season five right now, uh, they have branched out into other startups and telling the stories of other startups. Like they recently did an episode on Friendster, uh, a couple of episodes on the rise and fall of Friendster. But the episodes that I listened to were about uh, American Apparel, and it was from season four. It was a seven-episode series. So it was like probably about six hours of podcasting about American Apparel. And it is one of the most incredible sequences of podcasts I've ever listened to in my life. Um, the, the tape that they were able to get for this podcast is incredible. I actually found it to be more riveting personally than, uh, than S-Town, actually. Like I, I enjoy, quote-unquote enjoyed it more than S-Town, this, this seven-episode arc. But uh, part of that could just be because of my own personal interest in uh, startups and the complex figures that run them. So it's not an indictment of S-Town, just like kind of my own personal preferences. But uh, I assume you've heard some things about American Apparel, John. Uh, Are you aware of how it was ensnared in some very difficult times? I've heard about their boss being a really creepy skeeve who would – well, okay. I will. I, I'm going to report like spurious gossip, and then you. No, can no, no. That, that's all. All, like, all that stuff is correct that you just said. <laughs> creepy skeeve, and I think underage girls in the ads, but I could be wrong about that. But definitely, like, sort of these ads that promote, like, I don't know, very young-looking women in sort of like very provocative and and dead-eyed poses. Right. That's uh, my 
So th- this is the genius of this series of podcasts about uh, Dove Charney uh, from American Apparel is you get an in- insight into precisely how terrible of a person he was uh, and all the horrible things that he did and how damaging it was to so many people. But you also get insight into how much of a business genius he is and how mm-hmm. smart he is. And you are left being sickened by him and also impressed by him at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and that I think that's the hallmark of any great piece of art is it makes you really torn about someone. Like you see them for their full complexity. And I feel like this uh, podcast series does that. So it's the Startup Podcast. Uh, and it is season four, seven episode arc covering American Apparel. Would highly recommend it. Um, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Gen Pop. Find more episodes of this podcast at genpopshow.com. Email us at genpopshow at gmail.com. Before our last episode, Joanna, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Uh, you can find me on vanityfair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. And you can hear me talking about this week Alien, the Alien franchise on Star Wars Spoilers, and also episode three of American Gods. All right, and find all my stuff at davechen.net. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week for our final episode. <laughs>